Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a conversation with author and Yale University senior lecturer Karen Rothman. Her latest book, The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life, was published in 2017. I asked Karen Rothman what drew her to poet John Ashbery and why she chose to explore only the first 28 years of Ashbery's 90-year-long productive life. I always loved his poetry, and I was teaching his poetry, and I got the chance to meet him, and uh, we sort of hit it off. So I didn't ask him whether I could write the biography for a very long time. Actually, I was working on um, objects in his house and sort of studying his house, and uh, you couldn't really understand any of the objects in his house without understanding his history. Um, So I started sort of traveling upstate New York to kind of see where he grew up, and Eventually, I asked him if I could write a biography, at which point he said, oh, I thought you already were, which was, which turned out to be a kind of lucky thing. And you talk about that in your book, in your introduction. I do. So you had the chance to not only meet, but interact on a personal basis with your uh, subject. Mm. What was that like, and how did that inform how you took this project to its fruition? It was an incredible learning experience to talk with him because he's a very smart person and knowledgeable about so many different things. And we often talked about things seemingly unrelated to his life, but that turned out to be things that brought me back to his life in in really interesting ways. Um, It was a pleasure, truly, to know him. I was incredibly sad when he passed away this past September. I knew him for about 12 years up, up until then. And so many people that I've interviewed talk about what it was like to talk to him, um, what it was like to hear him make jokes and the the way his humor worked and to kind of see the way his mind went around a subject. I mean, his poetry is about everything. So all of those things that seem to have nothing to do with poetry always brought me back to the middle of a poem, regardless of whether we were actually talking about a poem or not. And he died in September 2017? That's right, yeah. For people who are not into poetry, as you or I may be, what made him unique? His poetry, I think, is unique for so many reasons. Um, He was able to be both incredibly witty, unbelievably erudite, but kind of wear it very lightly, and original. And his poems are incredibly moving, um, and and they often move in and out of that kind of feeling. And so you feel when you get to the end of many poems like you've been on a kind of journey with him. In some ways, his poetry goes back to kind of poets like Wordsworth or poets who you you feel with them the process of growing up, the process of aging. Um, and on the other hand, his poetry is like nothing anybody's ever seen. It's like poetry of the future. So he he somehow manages to, to bring all these things together. And so uh, in terms of looking at his work mm-hmm. and also his life, mm-hmm. 
Why did you choose to just deal with his early years and not his entire life, at least to that point? Okay, so so I actually am now doing a full biography of him. Um, so I asked him if I could do the early life in part because I knew he had said no to other biographers. And I thought maybe he might be more willing to let me write this biography if I was writing about a period of his life that was long ago. But the particular um, provocation for asking him was that while I was working in the house, I found these two things. One was his childhood diaries, four volumes from that he wrote from like 13 to 16. And um, the other was this compilation of the adolescent writing that he had done that he thought he had burned, but was still in his house. And um, those two things gave such an incredibly vivid picture of his childhood. It was while he was writing those diaries that he says openly in the diaries, I'm going to become a poet. And you, you really see somebody figuring out the genre in which their whole being can exist. It was remarkable to, to read those. Hmm. Why did he think he burned it? I mean, that's that's pretty major. It's lose it, yeah. Misplace it, yeah. Burn it? <laughs> that's. I mean, it's a good question. They they definitely had fireplaces at his homes um, in upstate New York, and there. You know, he was moving around a lot, so it's possible that he had burned some things. But the amount that still remained in that box was a lot. It says on the front of the the typewriter box where his adolescent writings in private keep out. <laughs> so um, so maybe he just forgot about that particular box of stuff. So, all right. So you have access to his diaries. And obviously, we're talking about very personal thoughts um, at the time. So was he willing and able to um, let you explore his childhood in terms of his sexuality and all, because obviously that was a source of um, anguish for him. Yeah. Um, so one funny thing that he said was, it was just last summer, he was talking to a, an old friend of his um, who's 89 now, and she was calling him and she had just read the book. It had come out like a month before. And, and he said, uh, you know, he was asking how she liked it. And and then she was asking him how he felt about the book coming out. And he said, well, you know, now everybody's going to know I'm gay. <laughs> it shows his kind of wry wit. But but it actually was a, a concern of his um, while I was writing it. He became much more open about his sexuality later in his life. But he still always felt that same anxiety that, that he felt, I mean, particularly because of, of the 1950s and um, McCarthy era and feeling afraid. So the two things, one was that he made me check that anybody that I mentioned in the book that he had any kind of sexual relationship with, that not only were they not alive anymore, but that they didn't have children who were alive. Um, otherwise, I had promised him I would change, you know, give them a pseudonym or something like that. He didn't want to out anybody else. And uh, the other thing was that it was a long process for me, actually, to understand the ways the diaries themselves were coded. And he had a whole system, in part because he knew that his mom sometimes snuck into his room and read his childhood diaries. So he was hiding things from her, especially. But it was incredibly helpful to me once I started to understand how he would code things. And so one of the m most moving ones for me was 
when he changed um, just the pronoun, because this is something he does in his poetry too, he changed it from I to we in the course of a paragraph. And it was only by a series of other accidents that I came to understand that that was actually a really important day for him in terms of his sexuality. And, and those were like these incredibly subtle things that he was doing at such such a young age. What age are we talking about? Uh, 15. Oh, wow. Okay. But there are things that you recognize in his poetry as things that he ended up turning into kind of formal innovations. And um, so it was, it was quite fascinating to me to s- sort of see the connections between those things. And when you say formal innovations, like uh, specifically, can you give an example? The, the way that he uses pronouns in poems is, is a subject of real interest. Um, so sometimes poems are they or you or you don't actually know who's speaking or who, who's being spoken to or how many and that it shifts within the poem. Um, and it's one of the things that kind of in some ways unsettles you as a reader. But it's also, I find it very, a kind of an effective tool. It's it's moving to, to sort of suddenly realize that you're part of a group and you thought you were an individual. Um, and, and that the poem is kind of moving around in, in those ways. He didn't tell you what his code was? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> But he was, but he was very open once I started to understand certain things. I mean, I did know that he sometimes wrote in French or wrote in Latin. Those were things that he was straightforward about. But the the specific thing with the I and the we, actually, I came to understand because when I interviewed him, if I asked him things about places and people, those were the, always the best interviews. So once I found his an address book that he had from when he was very young, and I just started asking him every name in the book that I hadn't encountered in some way. And it was when I got to the name of the person that was the we that he told me the story. And then because I had read the diaries, I realized that that was that story and that that's what he had been talking about in the diary. And then I started looking very differently at pronouns in the diaries. Did he object to your following a certain path? Um, Well, I, I didn't show him the book until it was done. And uh, he was very patient. He was remarkably patient. I did share with him the research that I was doing while it was going on, so he knew the kinds of conversations that we were having. But I know he was really anxious about it. I not only know because he told me directly, but he told other people too. And, And I understood it too, because biography is an incredibly worthy and meaningful project to undertake, but it's also you have such intimate conversations with your subject, or even if your subject's not alive, you have kind of intimate conversations across time with your subject. And there's a a fragility to that, which I take very seriously as a biographer. It's not that there are any lines that you can't cross in terms of that intimacy, but, but it matters, the sort of the tactfulness with which you do it and the tactfulness with which you write about it. So I felt really... Um, responsible for figuring out how to do it before I showed it to him. Um, at one point, he did call me one night and said, I like really need to see what you're doing. And, and I said, please just trust me that I need to figure out what I'm doing, and then I will show you. And that's what he let me do. He read it in manuscript the week that I turned it into the publisher, the, that more or less final draft. I gave it to him as well. And then he read it when it came out as a book, too. So I, 
and we had some real discussions about it. And there was actually only one thing that he mentioned that bothered him in it that he had learned, or I don't know if I had never mentioned this to him during the research process, but it was just a childhood friend of his that he thought was a really good childhood friend who had said something, you know, sort of nasty about him. And he was really hurt by it. He was maybe eight or nine when they were good friends. But since he had thought they were always good friends, it was it was the thing that bothered him the most in the book. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess that in some way is a reminder of how personal biography really is. Wow. How long did it take for you to write? I think it took me seven years. Okay. From, from the And it's time only you... 28 years of his life. <laughs> <laughs> What advice would you give to new biographers who are about to embark on um, on this whole uh, journey? Well, I'm sure that it's a, a sort of a person by person thing. I mean that you're you're in a relationship with the, your subject, and you have to work out the parameters of of that relationship, and um, and hope that you can keep trusting your subject, and that the subject will keep trusting you, and that your ideal in some ways is is the same that a decent and I mean decent in all all the different ways book can can emerge from that process and I feel grateful for the opportunity because it's a way of learning that's completely different from any other kind of learning that I've ever done and it was a deepening of so many things that I I didn't know and was curious about but got to learn in this unusual way I mean I think that's the strength of biography is that you you have this human path through all these different aspects of, you know, life and uh, art. Um, and so I think it's worth embarking on, but it was an unbelievable amount of work. <laughs> <laughs> so I really am writing this, this whole life now, and I'm in the midst of the research. I've spent this whole year researching that. And, and I think that I knew when I got to the end of that book that I knew his childhood in such a kind of solid way that it was a foundation for you know, figuring out the rest of his life. And even though I did a lot of research on the rest of his life just to understand the childhood, I knew I needed to do it in a different way. And I just sort of, I guess I, in some ways, I just wanted to finish the project, although I had some thoughts because I knew what I was getting into, um, given the amount of stuff that was just for 28 years. And then there's another... 62. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, did you tell him um, before he, he left us that you were thinking about uh, writing a, a, an entire biography of his life? I mean, I always wanted to, and I waited until he read the book to ask him if I could do it. And then he said, okay. So we spent the last year of his life actually doing interviews for the rest of the biography. Do you have to get any other permission from his estate now that he's no longer uh, with us? Um, well, his uh, his husband, David Kermani, has been always incredibly helpful and um, and continues to be. How did you come up with the title, The Songs uh, We Know Best? The Songs We Know Best is uh, a kind of funny poem that he wrote, but the aspect of the title that I wanted was the idea that the songs of our childhood are the songs that we know for the rest of our lives. And in fact, he was writing so many poems about his childhood at the very end of his life. Um, it was a period of time that he kept renewing creatively by dipping into the 
memories of that childhood. So the songs we know best um, is is really a, a, about that idea. Um, it was because of a peaches and peaches and herbs herb song <laughs> that he couldn't get out of his head, and he wrote it to that. So if you know the poem, the title is actually feels a little different in that poem, although there is a quatrain in that poem that is about how we learn and what it means to learn, um, which I think is part of what the title means, but, but, but the poem itself is one of his funnier, jauntier poems. And here's Karen Rothman reading from her book, The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life. So John Ashbery tries to win a Fulbright for five years in a row. He doesn't get one. And this, he finally gets off the wait list and gets a Fulbright. Uh, the Fulbright Commission had sent John a train ticket to New York City, but his parents and grandmother insisted on driving him to the ship. For some time, they had all been anticipating the opening of the New York State Thruway and were eager to test it. As they sped toward the city, they discussed John's going away party at Morris Goldie's place that evening at 10. All week, John had been reminding his friends to come. His father, Chet, was afraid that no one would talk to him. John was worried that his mother would realize, quote, just how many couples were not married. That night, Helen Ashbery was so pleased and relieved to see John's college friends, familiar faces, that John had trouble introducing her to anyone else. Jane Freilicher, meeting John's parents for the first time, thought Chet was, quote, a really impressive person. Fairfield Porter engaged Chet in a long discussion on apples and cherries, a conversation that resulted in an invitation to visit the Ashbery farm, which Fairfield hoped to do. Fairfield concluded that John's appearance and his nasal voice come from his mother. As a parent, Porter understood just how much John's parents would miss their son, for, quote, they are lonely now without even John's laundry every week. On the morning of September 21st, 1955, Helen, Chet, and Addie brought John to the ship, settling him into his cabin. Jane Freilicher arrived, then Frank O'Hara and Jimmy Schuyler crowded in. They opened a bottle of champagne and toasted John and his journey. Later in the day, John left his cabin to explore. He stood on the deck and looked out at the sea, a scene as vast and mysterious as his childhood view. He contemplated its depths, its current promise to bring, to, in bringing him to another shore and to a new way of seeing what he had just left behind. In three poems, many years later, he apologizes for staring endlessly at the same view. I'm sorry. In staring so long out over this elaborate view, one begins to forget that one is looking inside, taking in the familiar interior, which has always been there, reciting the only alphabet one knows. He had recognized the beginning of this idea first as a child, and it was one he would have to forget and relearn many more times before he could articulate it fully for himself. He needed the drama of a new shore in order to remember that, quote, it is the personal interior life that gives us something to think about. The rest is only drama. He was 28 years old and finally getting a chance to discover thoroughly all the things he already knew. That was author Karen Rothman reading from her latest book, The Songs We Know Best, John Ashbery's Early Life, published in 2017. Karen Rothman's reading and interview were recorded during the Biographers International Organization's annual conference, held in May 2018 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about bio on our website, 
biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.